and welcome to episode 405 of the Crate and Crowbar, a gaming podcast being recorded on the 14th of September 2022. I'm Marsh Davis. I'm joined this evening by the rightful heir to the English throne, King Jamie of Britain. Hello. <laughs> welcome. What are you, what's your uh, your first decree going to be now when you uh, mount the throne of golden skulls that is your birthright? <laughs> I think I would decree no improv on video game podcasts. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> I <Superb>. would. <laughs> I would I would decree that all school WhatsApp groups be outlawed because <laughs> uh, the messages that are going on in my uh, child's class WhatsApp group are just terrifying. Oh my god, that sounds dark and worrisome. Is it or is it just uh, sordid? It's it's not so much sordid, it is just the facile wittering of people who've got too much time on their hands. <laughs> wow. A, a perfect segue into the main discussion. Uh, this evening, I'm going to talk to you about Gloomwood, Jamie. Yes, uh, which is uh, a retro first-person sneak 'em up in the vein of Thief. Retro only really in the sense that it's quite low poly, but otherwise, as you sort of play it, you realise there isn't really anything that intrinsically old-fashioned feeling or quaint about it in action. I was wondering if you would agree with this. I don't know if you played the early Thief games, but like the core mechanics of stealth games in general don't feel like they've changed like in terms of the fashion of them a great deal like in the last 20 years in comparison to like the constantly evolving conventions of shooters. Do you think that's true? Yeah, it seems like the Thief games established the idea that a kind of steampunk quasi-Victorian setting was the de facto standard setting <laughs> for sneaking games, and everyone just agreed, like, yes, correct. Um, oh, we see. I, so I was thinking about like the, the actual sort of uh, interaction mechanics of stealth, like you know, light and dark. There are bodies you can pick them up. There, there are enemies with predictable AI that you can duke around uh, with sight cones. Um, all of that stuff feels like. I mean, it, it can be kind of more granular than that. But essentially, things exist on a, on a quite a narrow spectrum within the stealth genre. Whereas, like, you know, the, the conventions of the first-person shooter are very different from, like, you know, the Doom and the, the kind of retro throwback um, first-person shooters we're seeing now are very different from, like, the Call of Duty era of shooters or uh, or the Halo era of shooters, you know. Yeah. Maybe that's nonsense. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, no, I, I know totally what you mean. I, I do think the, the, you know, the Thief games... Uh, you know, are, are, you know, pretty fundamental to you know the, the sneaking genre. It kind of divides off into the sort of Metal Gear Solid likes, uh, you know, kind mm. of. Vibe. But even that is kind of not so much a thing these days either. And and like you know, the thief likes are kind of making a bit of a resurgence. You know, Dishonored is 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 just one of them. But like, I remember seeing an interview. You can see it on YouTube, and it's the guy who you know designed one of the people who designed Thief. And he talks about how when he was a kid, uh, like a small boy or a teenager, he snuck into like abandoned buildings in his neighborhood. And one night he he went down into the basement of a building uh, and he was all alone in the dark. And then suddenly a torchlight came on in the room and it's a security guard who followed him. who would obviously seen someone go in and he froze in the dark and the security guard scanned the torch backwards and forwards across the room looking for him. 
and then turned it off and, and walked away. And he managed to sort of, you know, get away with it. And oh, like wow. the idea that the Thief games are basically him trying to recreate that experience. <laughs> um, and that basically becoming the standard, like that is the moment that you want recreated uh, in, in a, any kind of sort of stealth game, isn't it? It's like almost being caught, getting away with it by your wits. Um, and, you know, from what I played of um, Gloomwood, it's also... Again, it's 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 very much that vibe as well. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I I, I didn't I hadn't heard that story before. That's great. I didn't realize the the entire genre was spawned by, you know, a, a child's malfunctioning urban exploration <laughs> exploits. That's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, there are other reasons it doesn't feel retro either, and that's because it it's quite modern um, in a lot of its other sort of design sensibilities. There are sort of uh, obviously this, this, putting this core stealth stuff aside. There's this really smart level design, um, dare I say it, Soulsborne level design. Um, now I may have forgotten this, but I think Thief originally had like save anywhere, more or less. Whereas here you have uh, you have to save at gramophones, which are you know very inc- infrequent in the environment, and sort of to accommodate that inconvenience, the levels are designed to have these incredibly intricate, intraconnective. Um, shortcuts such that you're constantly unlocking shortcuts back to the, uh, a save point um, and the sort of the stretches of unsavable challenge between those shortcuts are just like judged to be perfectly long enough to establish some real tension um, and it's, I, I was really impressed by it I felt it was incredibly clever the way that these levels were structured uh, and it's just a remarkable feat to have that kind of very um, consciously gamey sort of design without turning the setting into something you know like a nakedly ludic pile of you know polygons and alleyways um but uh yes uh, you've played a bit of it then i guess as, as you said earlier yeah I, I played the demo that came out a while back mm. um and i've been closely following um it because i loved his um dusk the last game he did um i thought was uh, uh really good um and you know, I think one of the reasons that it's kind of called a retro game is just that the creator of this, or the co-creator of this, and the creator of Dusk, he just really likes Quake, you know, looking games. That's just <laughs> very much his jam, and it's just his preferred palette. I don't think it's even you know necessarily a kind of retro thing, really. It's just kind of you know, it's the colours he likes to um, to paint with. Um, and yeah, I'm just very excited about it. I you know, I've, I've heard that the early access is a little bit limited at this point, and there's a good couple of years to go on it, um, uh, which is a shame because they seem to have been making it for ages. But I guess, you know, if it's just two guys and this level of uh, complexity, as you're describing, you know, they're, they're a long way off uh, of the finished product. Yeah, well, I, I imagine they'd be a lot further off if, if they had to produce a game in the sort of uh, fidelity of uh, any any engine post-Quake. Yes. Yeah. One of the things I loved playing, I played Thief only very recently, and I played Thief two recently. And there's a there's a moment in the very first mission, I think, of um, Thief where you're sort of sneaking into a mansion, and there's a room you come to which is like a colossal ballroom with a grand piano on a dais at one end, and then a few tables scattered around, but it's mostly empty. It's mostly just a room you cross to go and do one of the um, side missions. And it was such a a striking moment because normally areas in games 
you know, an area that big in most games would be where a set piece battle happens or where, you know, some story point occurs, you know, because it's it's grand and designed, but nothing happens in it. All it, it only exists really to fill you with the sort of sense of creepiness of being in a big space on your own with potential danger, you know, around. And um, it, that was just a, like a really unique experience playing that, like literally in the last 12 months or so. And what I played of, of um, Gloomwood, it seemed a bit less like, I don't know, there's something about Thief where the character you're playing, he feels sort of vulnerable and he feels kind of, you know, like a character that you can kind of empathise with in his kind of, you know, Blandy McBlandyson kind of way. Mm. I was wondering about, you know, who you are in in, uh, in Gloomwood and, and how that, you know, do you have that kind of sense of vulnerability or are you just a monster in a world of more monstery monsters than you <laughs> it's difficult to judge at this stage i mean there's not that much to go on about who you are in the game you're referred to as doctor by other characters um but clearly you have a history with this world uh and there are details about that history that start to unfold um you seem to have fallen foul of the the local regime, which are maybe cultists of some sort. It's hard, hard to say, and they've infested this sort of bleak stretch of vaguely New Englandy, uh, vaguely steampunky coastline. Um, and you you begin the game, and you've you found you've sort of been thrown into this pit full of offal uh, at some rickety, tottering fish processing plant on the coast. Uh, and you you're there to await some grisly fate of some sort, um, and then uh, you're you're there's some, there's some great voice acting in this, uh, uh, or at least it, it it sounds like the voice actors are having tremendous amount of fun at least, which is <laughs> just as important. And the guy who rescues you from your initial circumstances has this sort of broad. I, th- I think it's a, a East Coast uh, United States accent that sounds almost like a Suffolk accent. I don't know if you've heard that. It's kind of slight, slightly piratey, but at the same time, it's got the Suffolk vials, you know. <laughs> and um, the various sort of like cultish guards that are around are also sort of like coughing and spluttering and wheezing all the time. And they murmur and growl uh, in a way which is just exquisitely phlegmy. Um, um, but I, I, I have digressed from your question, which is whether you are uh, a beast in this game. And it seems like this game is kind of happier to to allow you to confront people more directly. Um, you do get access to a bunch of guns at some point. Um, but uh, I found direct confrontation still to be quite difficult, and you are very squishy still. So I, I mean, and my, my instinct is to play these games by just lurking around in the shadows and then poking people in the spine with a sword cane, <laughs> um, um, which is what I've been doing. It has this sort of... Um, wind up so you need to sort of wind up your 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 sword cane attack to deliver a lethal blow from behind so there is sort of like a timing element there it's not that it's not that easy just to dart out of shadow and nobble somebody you have to be behind them for a period of time which means that you do then have to engage with the sort of the distraction mechanics like you can throw uh bottles and stuff around or even severed heads um and like the 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 enemies are you know the AI responds to disturbances or things being out of place in ways which are, yeah, I would I wouldn't say smart, but like you know smart enough to be exactly predictable in the way that these games demand. Uh, I, I, I'm 
that makes it a very satisfying experience. Um, but like you say, it's only um, it's only really a few hours of it that are currently available. The, that thing is constantly alluding to this city, which you seem to be making your way towards. But the and that's obviously the meat of the game. Um, but that's currently completely off limits. So all you get at the moment in the early access is essentially this tutorial coastline uh, to muck about in. But even even then, I've been having like just a, a splendid time shanking people and just <laughs> just really like because the these those environments are so kind of densely constructed i've just been enjoying like probing every corner of them and finding that you know new shortcuts and secrets and so forth um i don't know whether to recommend it i, I assume there's some sort of early access discount um i'm i'm satisfied to say go buy it now and <laughs> get that discount um, because uh, on, on the basis of what I played, uh, it, it will be um, tremendous um, by the time it's fully fleshed out. Yes, and, and he did that with Dusk. Like He staggered the release of it you know, into episodes. It took quite a long time uh, for the game to come out. But when it did, it was you know, it's an absolutely uh, glorious thing, Dusk, um, which is also a game I, I definitely recommend if, if people haven't played it too. It's... Uh, uh, you, the, the, it similarly manages to do quite a lot with with very little, and even has a kind of interesting narrative that kind of develops over the over the course of that game. That kind of I don't know. He's he's got an interesting um, voice that creator, and, and like the way he's the way he like kind of does narrative is a it's kind of it's a bit like the way narrative is done in Quake, i.e., sort of not at all, or just with <laughs> like bits of text that pop up on the screen. Or, or like that sense that they've dropped in some voice acting at the last minute in order to provide context or something. But he does it in a kind of, you know, in a in a in a way that's considered. You know, it's almost a kind of ironic take on on you know uh, underwritten id software games um, uh, to a purpose. You know, so it'll be interesting to see where he goes with uh, Gloomwood. I'm sure he'll 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 do something you know along those lines. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how it expands. Talking of Another game which has uh, expanded beyond its initial bounds copiously. I hear you've been playing No Man's Sky. No Man's Sky, yeah. Like, this is a game, obviously, um, I'm sure everyone listening knows about the kind of history of No Man's Sky. It came out in, I think, 2016 um, and was, you know, it was this game that we were all incredibly excited about. Um, and then when it came out, it was kind of a little bit limited. And, you know, I, I actually enjoyed the game when it came out. Um, I found it to be a kind of really sort of good chill out experience. You know, I remember I just had my first child at that point and I was just completely sleep deprived and exhausted and being able to sort of get in a spaceship and fly around to these kind of candy colored planets um, uh, was kind of really quite um, chill and, and fun um, uh, to a point. <laughs> after, <laughs> after a while, you know, fill, trying to find stuff to fill up your fucking bolt caster or whatever um, uh, was um, kind of infuriating. And I more or less haven't been back to it since... I think I put 30 hours into it in that first time and I was it was 30 hours I was really pleased with and then I was just kind of done and on to other things. So booting it up, um, recently, God, they have <laughs> they have really gone to town on that game, and you know it's it's true what people say about it, which is it absolutely now provides the experience that it was supposed to have done when it was first released. 
they have just stuffed the game full of content to the point that you're kind of um, spoiled for choice about what you do, um, which almost makes it feel like sort of Skyrim in space, which I think was what people, you know, really wanted from it. Um, So, you know, they've done a really good job of structuring the experience now so that you're introduced to things that you can do and places that you can go and stuff that you can engage with or not. Um, and and you're just given the kind of, you know, the, the right prods in the right direction to kind of express yourself and and do what you want to do. Um, so I played, I've played it, you know, you know, for a good, I don't know, maybe 20 hours in the last few weeks. And what's so good about it is that it, it's a sandbox experience that gives you, um, uh, like I say, that's very good at giving you opportunity to express yourself, um, but never forcing you in one particular direction, which I think is a really difficult thing to balance because if you make a world too free and easy, um, then people just get bored and wandered off. But if you make it too full of like, you know, collect quests and, and faffy procedurally generated tasks it just feels thin and 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 kind of um empty really you know in the whole universe at your disposal and it ends up feeling like you know just very very um thinly spread and so Hmm. you know with each expansion that they've done and all the stuff that they've added they've they've just solved that problem basically it's now a game that you're it's a pleasure to play you boot it up and you can genuinely think to yourself oh what do i want to do now do I want to work towards buying a space car um, to drive around on this planet with? Or do I want to just try and make loads and loads of money by going mining? Or do I want to do some space battles? Or do I want to, like, you know, I found myself protecting a settlement from, um, you know, kind of outside invaders and then trying to find the right ingredients to sort of um, protect their town. Like, It's got that funny thing where you arrive at a town under siege uh, and the sentinels attacking this little settlement, um, and you help them fend off the uh, sentinels, and then they say, "Thanks for doing that. You're now the mayor of this town, <laughs> um, and you're responsible for all our problems. Thank you." Um, and so that's what that's what you do. And you know, previous obviously those experiences weren't in the game at all at the start, but stuff like being a, able to drop into some combat if you wanted to do the space combat, that's now available to you. Um, and so, yeah, like I say, it just ends up being a, a real joy to play and uh, with a, such a wide array of stuff on offer. Like, mm. I found myself getting into owning a freighter. You can now get a freighter. Again, actually, you can buy one, but in my game, I went through a black hole. There was a big pirate space fight going on with some pirates trying to blow up or, I guess, raid a, a big freighter ship. And I helped fight them off. And they said, great, you're now the captain of the freighter. Well done. <laughs> um, and you can now send your freighter off on um, you know, missions. Uh, and then so you can basically have a whole armada of trade vessels going backwards and forwards along trade routes and carrying out missions. And you, know, and, it, and you can also build your own base on the freighter. And if you stand on a planet and look up at the sky, you can summon your freighter into the sky above you. And then fly up to it in your spaceship, and it's just like it's great. It's it's such a 
it's such a, I guess what I like about it is that it's a very specific world. It's a very specific vision of space. You know, it doesn't feel like the elite dangerous kind of take on these things, which is much more generic and much more, a much more general fantasy about space, although I do think that game is extraordinary in its own way. Whereas No Man's Sky, it feels like this is our weird and wonderful fantasy version of um, of the universe, and we're going to show you our weird take on it, um, and eventually it's going to kind of win you over with its charm. I think it's a very charming game, and it does it by sort of a slow osmosis. Um and I think that's interesting, given that it was a game that you know people were really turned off by at launch, and now it's you know if you come to it fresh now, having never played it before, it's full of charm and and character and and a sense hmm. of humour and um, all oh, sorts of stuff like that. And it also just feels really populated. You can now drop into multiplayer really easily. The little gribbly aliens that you bump into are you know characterful enough to kind of not just feel like a you know a bunch of red shirts um and it also just can't be overstated how good the procedural generation can be in that game like really extraordinary vistas even just playing it on the steam deck you know which isn't really a graphical powerhouse i have my base on an ice moon um orbiting you know in in the rings of the dust rings of an enormous like um giant planet um and the view when I step out of my base is like, it's properly breathtaking. It's properly amazing. Um, and and it never gets old. Um, and that is a, a wonderful thing, I think. Um, yeah, so like, kudos to them. They've, they've like filled the game with stuff to do and in doing so kind of solved every problem uh, it had, I think. Amazing. I mean, how does it orient you? Because one of the things I, I felt about it playing it originally was that uh, it had it, it didn't do a great job of really telling you what to do, and all the things that it promised that you could do seemed quite arduous. Uh, yeah, I assume it, that's changed. But I mean, does it give you like a specific direction now, which is kind of more fruitful immediately? It gives you several. Um, it gives you several directions that you can you can head in, and it kind of tells you the ones which are the the kind of main story ones, and it tells you the ones which are the slightly less important story ones. I mean, the, when the game first launched, you know, you wake up next to a broken spaceship, and in my first playthrough of the game, it was an absolute pitched battle to try and collect enough resources before I died of exposure um, on this planet. It's actually an amazing experience the first time I booted up No Man's Sky because it just so happened it loaded me into a world... Um, where there was only just enough of resources and they were spread out so far that I I made it by the skin of my teeth. Um, whereas for a lot of people, I think booting up No Man's Sky for the first time, it was just, you know, a bit tedious. They still do that, but they get you up into space nice and quick and the game just opens out really quickly. Um, mm. The resources are less demanding to get you started. Um, you have to kind of hit a couple of, like, plot points, but... The rewards and the um, you know the kind of incentives for following those things are also kind of frictionless. So you know you can imagine not really struggling to um, if you were you know starting up a new character or playing through things again, it wouldn't be so bad because as uh, as well as this you know the fact that the procedural generation is always on on the go 
you're never seeing anything, you know, you're never having to repeat the same worlds over. So yeah, they've just like, they've taken out all those barriers now. And they've also done stuff like, I mean, I tried booting up the game in free mode, like when I last tried, uh, in like creative mode, sorry, which just, you know, obviates all the need for resources and just gives you unlimited stuff to do with as you please. And actually that, that runs that runs out of charm very quickly. You oh. need, you do need the, I mean, if you get, I guess if you're really into base building and stuff like that, or just pure exploration, which I guess I thought I would be interested in. I was just, oh, I'll just be like a, um, you know, I'll be like a star child flying through the cosmos, <laughs> you know, a, 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 a Olaf Stapledon star maker, Jamie. Um, <laughs> uh, but actually that, that ends up being quite tedious. Um, so you do need the game, I think, um, to uh, to kind of make those vistas worth it, and I think that you know that was the problem with No Man's Sky when it first came out is that it didn't feel like your efforts were to uh, to any kind of real reward beyond hmm. this is what the prop gens come up with now, this is what the prop gens come up with now. But now there's a whole you know bunch of bunch of stuff going on that makes it um, yeah um, re- really worth it. I think. I'd also point out the music is still fantastic by 65 Days of Static. You know, these lovely um, kind of it's almost major chord, staticky, electro-ambient um, stuff with occasional kind of uh, 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 atonal honks, honks, which <laughs> appear to be a relatively new addition, but are very welcome uh, to me. Um, always, you're always welcome in an atonal honk. Oh, I love an atonal honk. And like, also, you know, you can feed the animals and ride them around. Like, I've got a horrible dog, like a really <laughs> awful dog that I was just trying out. You know, the the feed them, train them mechanic on it, and I get on, I get on the dog and ride it around. It it can run much slower than me, and also like because it's got like the way it's shaped, it's kind of like a snake dog. I am riding like not on its back really, but like right up on its neck. Like on its shoulders, which just looks just looks very strange. I look like a weird spaceman centaur uh, abomination. Um, Is that but, like a designated mount animal, or can you tame and ride any you any can, of the procgen beasts? You can kind of tame and ride pretty much any of them, um, which can be very funny because some of them are extraordinary, like you know, like weird um, crab. Uh, like floaty blob things, you know, <laughs> you can like, here you go, here you go, little buddy. And you can feed it a little treat and then it will become your friend. And then you can summon it when you land on a planet and sort of <laughs> ride it around like a horrible horse. It's, um, it's great. It's great. It's, it's really funny and, and stupid and, and good. <laughs> and they've just made pretty much everything, um, rideable, mountable. Um, Yeah. <laughs> and you, it's great you've got a horrible dog and you can land on some like hostile planet and like I know what I need here my horrible dog I'm going to summon him and they've made that frictionless as well you can just summon your horrible dog from across on the other side of the galaxy and, and go on adventures together <laughs> I'm interested in what you said about it having a, a personality now because at launch I mean it had a very dis- distinct and absolutely beautiful visual style for sure, and there was writing in the game which was characterful and interesting. But sort of, there was something about the uh, the way it approached Proc Gen that sort of ended up sort of like sapping, uh, 
like a, a well a character, I guess, from the game because it, if everything felt slightly kind of clean and beautiful, but also slightly sterile in a way. And you're saying now that there's there is uh, there's a real personality and humor to it. Yeah, I think so. I think I think you know. I think there's a there's not that big of a divide. I think from a game feeling like you know, procedural porridge, you know, where everything's just a little bit uniform and, and you know, similar to each other. I actually don't think it's too far to go from that to something feeling, you know, it's still the same building blocks they're using in it. It's still a bunch of weird gribbly aliens and you have to work out their language and they sort of hang around in a, in a space station kind of, you know, it's, there's nothing, there are characters in this game now and there are storylines in this game and the characters feel well-written and well-conceived. There's still no, you know, like voiced characters or anything like that. Um, I think it's I think it's been tuned very carefully is what I think. I think they've been very diligent in what they've added to it uh, so to not make the whole sort of pot boil over and become overwhelming. You're still going to these weird slightly, um, uh, you know, empty feeling um, star bases and things like that. But yeah, like I say, they've just tuned it up to the right degree where it feels um, it feels like an actual space. Um, and, you know, I think, I think, you know, that is part of, it must be one of the reasons why, you know, rolling out these features slowly over the course of several years, you know, I guess they can think very long and hard about, you know, what they put in and, and, mm. and, and that sort of thing. And I think that's the, you know, I assume that what they did when the game came out was was to think, you know, well, we've got this big canvas now and let's treat it like that and then let's slowly and deliberately add to it rather, you know, and, and that seems to have worked very well. It just seems, it's it still seems kind of like it's got these impossible, um, you know, these impossibly enormous uh, potential in it um without seeming anonymous yeah and i i i think it's um it's uh yeah it's really fun i'm gonna play it a whole bunch more i think um it makes me you know i don't like crafting in video games it's tedious but for some reason in no man's sky again they've made it easy to kind of you know whatever you want to make you can pin the recipe to your you know ui and it will not only just tell you the ingredients, it will give you the steps that you need to go through in order to get those ingredients. You know, it really kind of holds your hand. And and me, an idiot, really appreciates that because, <laughs> you know, I can't hold more than one idea in my head at once. No, likewise. Yeah, these uh, games with, like, uh, abstract recipes are just absolute uh, horror show for me. I can't, uh, just can't cope with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't really stand crafting at all. Like, I, I don't know whether it's just having, you know, worked at Mojang or <laughs> Minecraft <laughs> has put me off it forever. But uh, I do see what you're saying about uh, that sort of the survival-ish element being a necessary engine for you to uh, find pleasure in the rest of the game. I think if, if I just spoiled myself by going to the free create mode, I probably would find it unsatisfactory. Yeah, it just it just feels a little bit too... I mean, I think people find similar things with Minecraft. I mean, I've tried playing Minecraft on on creative mode and I often find myself feeling like I'm just sort of, yeah, it's, it's it, I'm missing out on something. Well, I mean, it, 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 it means you don't have to explore so much and exploration is, whenever I've played Minecraft, that's the thing I enjoy mm. most about those games. You know, the idea that you've got this space that you, that is just yours. Um, 
and I think No Man's Sky has drilled down and down on that fantasy a lot now, so that you know you do have this this universe that you know there are other people in it if you want them to be, but ultimately you can build your little dream log cabin <laughs> on uh, on some some disgustingly horrible like fart planet and uh you know have a little underwater base there and 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 make sure you've got your fart protection clothes so you can go for a a morning constitutional round with your horrible dog you know if you want (laughs) if that is your fantasy um you can do that you know and and i think that is that's you know it's there's no other game like that really there's nothing that comes close even um uh to to kind of having you know that that potential to it, and I think they're probably just going to keep keep going, keep adding to it. Um, I imagine, uh, and uh, you know, I think there's there's all sorts of stuff that they could they could do that I think you know would would make it an even more uh, you know attractive kind of space to spend time in in that kind of um, Minecraft Fortnite kind of way. You know, it's, mm. it's it's not so much a social game at the moment, but I think it will probably become. I mean, I'm sure it is for some people. It's not for me because, you know, I'm kind of, that's a little bit distant, that stuff. But you can imagine it becoming even bigger as the years go by. I don't know what kind of, uh, what kind of monetization they have. Do they they have like a subscription sort of aspect to it? No, they don't like it. They've never charged for any of their many, many updates, which have like, you know, increased the size of the game probably five times in terms of, you know, the amount of content there is there. Um, you know, I think they, I mean, as people have said, they took all that money, that all that goodwill money that people paid for it when it <laughs> came out and decided to invest it back into into the game itself. Um, and I assume people still buy it. I mean, I rebought it, um, you know, because I had it on PlayStation. I rebought it on Steam and it was, it was 20 quid and it was, you know, it was definitely worth it. Because it is a, you know, it is a, a different game than it was. It's it's worth it's worth that money for sure. Interesting. That feeling of landing on a planet and not knowing what you're gonna find there and what it's gonna look like. That is like a little miracle of of game design. You know, it's it never fails to kind of, you know, you'll you'll land on a planet and it'll look kind of crap, and then you'll walk up a hill and the view will open out beneath you and you'll see some. You know, stunning. You know, like, uh, you know, there's one that was like a kind of series of like lovely, like uh, almost like Caribbean island archipelago, sort of stretching out in front of me with little frog monsters hopping around in it, and it's just, you know, it's just fantastic. <laughs> How many new sites do you need to see before you just become kind of blasé about it? Because <laughs> that is, I mean, that is always the thing with procedural generation. You know, you you hit the randomized button enough, and you start just thinking, like, oh yeah. Oh, whatever. It's another giant goose creature with you know, <laughs> horns on its ass. Whatever. Yeah, I mean the animals in particular are—they're kind of unimpressive. You know, they still never really gotten around how to procedurally generate animals that basically aren't either dogs, kangaroo monsters, um, or like big gribbly crab insects. You know, they do have a few like disgusting floating. Um, like blob monsters and things like that, and I believe there might be like dragons in the game now. <laughs> I can't. I don't find one okay. of those yet. So there's a whole bunch of stuff like that in there, but everything does look like the um, creatures that you make in that like spore. They are oh, fuck it, that'll do. And then, uh, and then, 
you know, it's it's like it's like all the animals that everyone ever created in Spore, um, you know, sort of slipped through a, a hole in space time and ended up in No Man's Sky um, because they are shite. Yeah, um, but you know, they're kind of charming, and as I say, you can ride them. Um, <laughs> and that does make up for an awful lot of. It really does. Sense. It's like the animals in our, you know, here here on this planet, our animals are all shit. However, they will let you ride them. <laughs> Sounds cool. Probably won't play it. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you don't want to craft. You don't want to craft some carbon nanotubes and then fly up to a space station and sell them uh, to craft a product, and then realize that the same stuff you used to make them was actually the thing you needed in the first place. <laughs> uh, that's the dream, isn't it? Though absolutely, the dream. It's a, simulates being a human being in twenty. <laughs> I have also been playing a puzzle game Ooh. called i actually have to bring up my notes because literally every time <laughs> i've tried to think about this game <laughs> i've forgotten its name taiji t-a-i-j-i it may mean something to somebody but it doesn't mean anything to me um however it's quite good it's sort of like the witness but in uh, pixely two dimensions you're this little pixel person on a sprawling pixel island of many different biomes. And each biome area explores a sort of different spin on the same core puzzle design. So like in, in, in The Witness, you were going around this island and each area would have all these sort of panels that were kind of like uh, joined up to each other, like electronic panels. And you'd draw lines across the grids on these panels as per whatever the demands of the individual puzzle was. And uh, that was the, sort of like the fundamental interaction of all the witnesses' puzzles uh, was drawing these lines across these grids, tracing lines across grids. And here you have grids on panels, but instead of tracing lines through them, you're sort of designating the individual squares on those grids to be either black or white, like sort of like Picross, basically. Um, and once you've satisfied that you've flipped to the right pixels, you press space and it's either correct and the next puzzle lights up or you fundamentally haven't understood something about the puzzle, which is the more frequent result for me. And um, the, you, you have to think harder about the rules for that section of the island. So there's sort of like, um, often you're sort of replicating um, things, uh, re replicating a pattern based on sort of like uh, cryptic instructions. Um, through sort of like symbology so you you know certain puzzles you'll be you know you'll be given uh, these cryptic instructions which are sort of squares with a dot in them and that sort of means that um, uh, certain squares on your grid need to be colored in or not colored in and then they'll throw uh, extra conditions upon that by saying well actually you can't flip these particular squares and uh, becomes much more more and more complicated um, I would say it's not quite as good at tutorializing as uh, The Witness was. Uh, I, I've sort of stumbled headlong through puzzles, getting them correct, but not at all understanding why, <laughs> um, which hasn't been great. Um, and there's sort of a, a sense of deflation once you get through an area because it just sort of... Um, wh whereas The Witness was quite... Uh, intentionally building towards something. When you finish an area, there's this very kind of 
grand animation as this giant sort of laser tower erupts and then beams at the central point. You always feel like you're doing doing something, you know, building towards something. Here, you sort of just uh, you just exit the section and you're you're back more or less where you were again. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that there's it's it's quite doing enough to pull me through all these different puzzle areas yet. Um, and some of the puzzle design. I'm a bit suspicious of. I either I'm always reticent to say to criticize puzzle design because it could be that I'm just quite stupid. Um, but there are do seem to be things that are uh, visually not that apposite. I think in terms of the way that the the instructions have been designed to communicate to you what you're you're meant to be doing. Um, but I did want to plug it because it is uh, it is a pretty uh, accomplished and seemingly massive puzzle game, um, <laughs> uh, and I do like those. So. It's funny. You sh- it's funny you should mention like you know the you know brute forcing puzzles that you don't quite you know get the reason you know because the you don't really get why you've solved it. You just know you have. Whereas like the witness is very good at you know saying to you, right? Do you understand how this works? And you say yes. And then the game says, do you really understand it? And then, no, I, I really don't. Like, that was a complete yeah. fluke. And the witness is very good at building in, like, redundancy for your stupidity um, in order to make sure you understand something before um, uh, you move on, which is a very Jonathan Way blow of doing it. But um, Yeah, I feel uh, like it doesn't have that safety net here. It, often, like, uh, puzzles are just an escalating sequence of new additional rules and... Uh, uh, before you've really had a chance for any of the rules to bed in, and th- I mean that's that's kind of a, a, a challenge in itself. But also when you come back uh, to the puzzles later on, or you encounter those same mechanics elsewhere, it's just very easy to have forgotten what they mean because they're not sufficiently drilled into you. Um, yeah, that's frustrating. I did find that occasionally in The Witness as well, but that's. Um, but you know that's what uh, YouTube walkthroughs are for. I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Did you also want to talk about Crusader Kings, Jamie? Yeah, I'll talk about it a little bit. Um, I'll talk about it in the context of being um, bad at Crusader Kings three, <laughs> because I, you know, I like listening to the Three Moves Ahead podcast, and I like listening to uh, you know podcasts where people who know what they're doing talk about the amazing emergent narratives they get out of mm. you know games like Dwarf Fortress or Crusader Kings. Um, and I'm always kind of desperate to have those experiences, um, and they're often quite hard to get at, you know, because the games are often quite mechanically complicated, or you have to, you kind of, they're mechanically complicated, or you just have to, like, really, really know what you're doing um, and what you're working towards, and kind of in a very particular mindset to to kind of extract the great stories out of these things that other people seem to kind of come across every single time they fire up the game so i've I've always been in search of that because i love a good emergent narrative and yeah i like i say they're always a little bit elusive and i often have to kind of vicariously experience them through others like on youtube or twitch or whatever however i would say that crusader kings 3 is by far and away the the most accessible um version of that experience like i played a fair bit of of ck2 um, and really enjoyed it, but probably never really had that many experiences that I could tell as a as a story. You know, it was always a little bit too hard for me to grasp, 
and it would end up kind of getting out of my control and I'd lose a war because I didn't know how, you know, you know, warfare worked in that game. And I just kind of, there's a horrible moment that can happen in, in uh, Crusader Kings type games where you suddenly see behind the the matrix, you know, you, you suddenly see behind everything. And you just think, oh, this is just a fucking bunch of like numbers smacking together. These aren't real people. These aren't real stories. You know, I want my procedurally generated EastEnders and this is like, this isn't even procedurally generated Hollyoaks, you know, it's just kind of really like fake. Um, And so, but with Crusader Kings 3, which I've been playing off and on since release, um, they have, I've had a much better time with it, mainly because, and again, like is sort of part of my character as a gamer, I guess, is that they take away a lot of the friction between you and the game and make it much easier for you, for the character you play in the game to feel like as an extension of you, and they do it in this in various ways. Um, it's got this kind of godlike um, hypertext system, so that whenever you're wanting to do something or you're hovering over something, it will give you, you know, um, the keywords are written in bold, and if you mouse over them, it will explain those words, uh, those term those terms to you, and what what that means for you. you or um, what sort of choice that means for you. And then often those bits of hypertext also have terminology within them, and you can mouse over those as well. So you can go down many layers of um, explanation and tutorial without breaking up the flow of the game by having to like read a separate uh, piece of UI that explains it or, or try and fumble your way through. Um, which for me, you know, I have dyspraxia. And as I say, I can't hold more than one idea in my head at the, head at the same time. I have particular problems around organizing disparate thoughts. And so for me, that is just a, a lifesaver because it basically says, here is what this is. Here are the choices you can make around it and and um, and why that's important to your character. Um, yeah, so I find that, a huge help and they've really recognized i think that the you know one of the reasons people play crusader kings is so that they can have these experiences still though you know i'm not good enough at the game for things to get too complex or get too um out of hand really but i find that if i bring myself to bear on the game and i just bring my own like sense of role play to it and my own sort of sense of character to it i get a lot more out of it um, so, for example, the most recent campaign I played was as a um, a king of Scotland, um, and this king was a good guy. He was an all-round nice fellow, um, treated his subjects fairly, um, and, and uh, you know, didn't have affairs, um, but uh, he was desperate to create the um, kingdom of Scotland, and in order to do that, I needed to commit one small murder. I needed to do as this king had to do one murder um, in order to, you know, by by degrees take over the final part of Scotland that would order him to create the de jure kingdom of Scotland, rather than it being this kind of, um, you know, I can't even remember the terminology, but it's like, you know. The, the barony or the duchy of Scotland. We want to create the kingdom of Scotland. And that was his life's work. And he eventually did it. And he did have to murder one Norwegian guy to do it. And that was... Want to make an omelette? Got to kill some Norwegians. (laughs) Absolutely. So that drove him to drink. 
which eventually drove oh, no. him to die from alcoholism um, because he was so because you have these like traits for your character so that king was like honest or good or whatever and that means that every time he does something evil like kill someone like assassinate someone um, his stress goes through the roof and when you take on stress you have you got you get various choices as how he deals with that stress and I chose drinking so he drank himself to death. Um, this this good king uh, over guilt of, of killing this Norwegian dude. Now, but he did manage to create the kingdom of Scotland. So great, we've got we've we've won a whole bunch of um, you know prestige and influence and money for doing that. And I, I as a player feel good because that's the thing I've been working for across this entire character's lifetime. And so I start playing as the heir um, to that guy, and the heir is his father's son, but he's also a brilliant strategist. So I was like. This is going to be the guy. I groomed him as he grew up to be this, you know, to want to uphold his um, father's, um, you know, dream of a of a united Scotland, and uh, you know, and he's going to be shrewd enough and clever enough to um, not spill huge amounts of blood uh, in order to, um, uh, you know, keep this keep this place going. But uh, unfortunately, he also has four horrible brothers who hate him and are all absolute bastards in the way of <laughs> Scottish kings, brothers from history. Um, they all despise him. And very soon after um, uh, my character becomes king and takes up the throne, they come to him as a group of his most powerful vassals and say, um, we hate you so much that we are going to break up this kingdom into its dif- disparate parts rather than having you be its king so we're going to lower the crown authority which basically means that you're going to be bust back down to our equivalent and then we're going to go into um we're going to go we're going to war with each other um in order to you know see which of us can become you know the king of of, of, of the kind of what once was the kingdom of scotland and so like that was just like a you know over a couple of play sessions um and what happened was the the that whole country, the whole of Scotland erupted into war. The character I was playing as um, got turned into just a kind of baron who basically had like some shitty bit of like fife or something. And then all the other vassals had much more. And I was like, oh, this feels like a failure. Like everything my father fought for, I have lost in an instant the moment the rain, uh, you know, came to me. But the good brilliant... Story, though. Yeah, it's a good story. And it's like, it's quite a basic ass story. But like... It's characterful enough. And the thing is, and the the genius thing they've done, and I can't remember if you could do this in CK2, but it'd definitely make it easy in CK3, is I got bumped down to just some shitty baron from being king. But then what you can do is you can transfer over to any other character in your dynasty and play as them. So after I'd kind of told that story there, of that character, I was like, right, I am now going to play in the same setting, on the same map with the same characters as the shittiest of those brothers, you know, the worst <laughs> of them. And now now I'm going to play as him because the aim of the game is to just keep your dynasty alive. It doesn't matter who you play in it. Um, and I think that for me was the moment where I was like, okay, I can kind of like avoid that feeling of sort of seeing behind the matrix now because whenever anything gets too boring or if I ever feel like I'm at a dead end, I can just switch over to another character and it's a different episode of EastEnders, you know. Um, it's following a different lead character. 
and the character that you played obviously is still a character in that story, but you're you're going off in a in a different direction now, and you've got the fun of like, all right, this character is an absolute, you know, see you next Tuesday. He's going to murder everyone, you know, and you can sort of play at that fantasy, and you can see how that that kind of works. And so yeah, I I, I was just. I, w- I found that really enjoyable because it means you can fail, as as my character very much did, um, but then keep rolling that failure into your into your soap opera and seeing where it's gonna where it's gonna take you. You know, that's cool. Do you do you jump in at the point at which you sort of abandon the previous plot, or can you can you go back in time and sort of re-enter the narrative as an alternative character? Early? I mean, I, I think you could, you could you know, literally just reload an earlier save and, and do exactly okay. that, yeah. I think you're able to... I think you're able to change to any character in the world <laughs> at any time. Oh, wow. Um, I think you can do that. You can certainly change to any character in your in your dynasty, and I think... Paradox want you to do that because it kind of means you can you can roll on for you know for kind of a much longer time than if you kind of because it's a very easy game to give up when you've lost the kingdom of Scotland. <laughs> it's yeah. like well, it feels like a fail state. Um, I keep on meaning to get into Crusader Kings. It's some it's, it's like the game that I most want to get into alongside things like Dwarf Fortress or these other sort of story generating games. I always feel like. When I give it a go, and actually I, I got further with uh, Crusader Kings three than I ever have done with its predecessors, uh, because, like you say, it is it's a lot, you know very uh, good at explaining itself and it's quite streamlined in a lot of ways. But it still takes quite a lot of time to squeeze out a good story from it, and I, uh, my impatience with it isn't with the game itself; it's it's comparing my own experiences with the good stories that I've been told <laughs> by other people. And as soon as you know, like you know, Graham always plays these sorts of games, and he comes out with amazing kind of exotic tales of uh, you know absolute insane shit fuckery, the, the most lurid possible, absurd things. I never managed to get anything that feels quite as uh, exotic or interesting quickly enough and then i just feel like well what's the point i could just you know i could just read an article about it or you know just <laughs> dm graham or something if i wanted to uh, get get a good story um i know this is a problem with me jamie it's not a problem with the game i should just get over it and actually just enjoy the playing of it but because they are such such renowned sort of sources of of fun game anecdotes i feel like if i'm not getting a fun game anecdote instantaneously that what's the point yeah and they you know they they do occasionally when you're playing them they do i mean for me like i i do think i do think you get out what you put into them and like what I'm willing to put into a, a game like Crusader Kings, the best story I'm going to get out of it is a fairly standard, like the story I just told is like a pretty basic ass history story. Like if someone said to, came up to you in the street and put a gun to your head and said, come up with a history story about Kings, you'd probably come <laughs> up with that one, you know, be the first one you went to. Um Whereas, yeah, all the kind of crazy Byzantine stuff about, like, um, you know, and then a, the Pope type stories that people are able to tell about CK3, those feel completely remote to me. And I'd love, I'd love to get at them, but I do think there is a slight barrier in terms of you have to have the right kind of headspace for it, and you also have to be good enough at the game to kind of take it off in 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 truly weird directions. Um, yeah, so I, I do very much empathise with, with that feeling, actually. There was one other funny thing that happened. 
which was I had a course here. Yeah, they've got this Royal Court um, expansion that came out, which is quite cool because you get your throne room where all the characters and, uh, who are at your court are rendered, um, you know, in this room and, and you can hold court and people will come and petition you for various things and you can put your big um, artifacts in there to show off and, and kind of stuff like that. And uh, I think it was part of that expansion that I was able to make one of my, um, I think it was one of my like least favourite vassals um, into my fool, into my court fool. Um <laughs> And uh, she uh, she uh, was kind of would would turn up periodically through my play, um, uh, kind of you know with all sorts of Shakespearean japes and stuff like that. And there was one moment where she burst into the courtroom chasing another one of my courtiers, uh, no, being chased by another one of my courtiers, and she'd stolen her clothes. And uh, you know, part of the uh, character design in CK three is that. Uh, you know, the character it features nudity, so it was a topless woman being chased by a fool through my court, screaming to have her clothes given back to her, which was really funny in and of itself. And then years later, in that same game, something my king was like drinking and falling into a deep depression, and he was visited by the courtier, um, that same courtier. Um, who told him that she understood his pain and and that she wanted to be a closer friend to him, um, but she still <laughs> she still didn't have her clothes on. <laughs> she, uh, the, the the fool apparently had never given them back, and like fifteen years had passed <laughs> with this poor lady just being topless at court, um, and that sort of thing is just really really funny. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the fact that they thought about that and to include, you know, that this character basically now has the trait naked because the fool <laughs> stole their clothes. And that was just really funny because they both had such serious expressions on their faces. <laughs> it was just like, listen, Karen, it's nice that you care, but we really need to talk about <laughs> getting you some new clothes. I've also been playing Immortality, Jamie, which you love so much. <laughs> yeah, I listened uh, to last week's episode, and uh, it was a really good discussion. Um, and I, I imagine we'll get, we will do some deeper, more spoilery chat about it at some point. I, don't, I, th- I think we can avoid spoilers. I did want to get your opinion on a few things and sort of dig into stuff a little bit more, um, but without sort of like blowing the entire kind of idea of the game. Um, but I, 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 I don't think I loved it quite as much as you did. I had a great time with it. I really enjoyed it. And um, as I have all of um, the games from Half Mermaid and San Barlow, um, I don't think it quite worked as well for me at like a really sort of pernickety um, mechanical level than some of his previous games. But there's sort, of, there's sort of a trade-off because there are things I really admired about it as well, which... Um, couldn't be done in the previous games, but by doing them in this one, it, they they also tied themselves into some like a, a less satisfying loop of discovery, I would say. So, I mean, the the, um, the previous games have all been uh, word input based, so you're watching these clips and you have an idea of uh, a subject matter that you wish to see more clips of, and you type in a word, and then all the a certain number of clips appear that contain that word. And the past games have sort of done this kind of slightly cute way of saying, oh, you're you're using a sort of like a very old computing database system here, so we can only give you five results 
based on the based on any kind of word input you give and so that kind of limits your your ability to just expose the plot instantaneously um but with this one it it it, it switches to um a, a visual um uh, interaction so you're clicking on things within the clip like items and faces and, and so forth and then it's match cutting you with other clips that contain either the same or similar items but it obfuscates that it's not giving you the the, the full number of those clips it's only unlocking a, one at a time and then you quite quickly find that that sort of tops out you start looping back so you can't just click on an actor's face endlessly and get every single clip that that actor has appeared in, it sort of tops out and then you, you're looping back on the clips you've already seen. You have to find some other way to get into those other clips. And like on the one hand, that that is, they, they, I felt like they needed to change um, that interaction up. There was only so many times they could use that, the, the sort of word search metaphor before it became kind of just too transparent. And I think that, the choice of going for like a, this visual match cut is very um, is very apposite for the the medium of cinema that they're discussing, and it also feels kind of kind of luxuriously metaphorical. Uh, you know, you've got these. You know, you're not just clicking on. Um, you're not just typing in like oh, murder or whatever. You're, 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 you know, you're clicking on a pool of blood, and then you'll see kind of you know all the other kind of uh, things that either like blood-like or spillages and things like that. And that's quite exciting because you get there's there's a sort of inexactness there with the way it matches things, which is um, which invites metaphor. But I also don't think it's that useful as like a, a means of pulling apart a mystery, um, and. I feel like uh, at a certain point, you know, um, I mean, obviously it'd be just too powerful to click the the lead lady's face and just get every clip of her unlocked instantly. But then I, I quickly found that I was a point where it was just more fruitful to click on fairly random stuff like cigarettes and wine glasses and slices of cucumber or whatever. And then finally, you know, you'd, you'd stumble across like uh, a pivotal scene based on uh, on a kind of match cut that you couldn't possibly have had any logic for choosing to get to that point and i think sam sam barlow said something on uh twitter about um how uh his approach to this was ballardian in that um ballard invited readers of his novels perhaps not to even to begin at the beginning but just to flick through the pages until some words you know caught their interest and then just to sort of scrabble around finding other things that are interesting and sort of like spread out in a non-linear way and i think uh immortality attempts to do something similar that it's not really it's actually sort of tr downplays the mystery side um of the game altogether unless you unless you read uh, any of the pr bump or watched any of the trailers the game itself doesn't give you any kind of prompt question to follow um, as you get into this. And so I, sus I suspect that that's sort of intentional, that it's part of the design ethos, that you're just sort of like moving through this this montage of uh, cinema moments and backstage moments and, you know, interviews and so forth, and just find, you know, feeling your way to something that interests you. But I also found that that lack of direction quite frustrating when it rubbed up against uh, my own desire to unravel certain things and then not really having the tools to pursue them. 
Yeah, I mean, because the thing that her story does exquisitely, uh, I think, is that it it gates progress through the game based on your understanding of the mystery. And it requires you to make logical leaps or logical connections, um, which then open up a new vocabulary of words for you to explore and combine mm. with other words. And that makes it into a true kind of game. You know, it, it's a mystery game. Um, and I remember at the time, lots of people said it, it gives you the, exp- you really do feel like a detective playing it um, in a way that, you know, no other game is probably quite managed because of how it's only your knowledge and your understanding of the story that can allow you to proceed. And I would agree that immortality basically abandons that concept. It doesn't really um, use the uh, match cutting mechanic to. You can't use it in a directed way. It's always pretty much a random roll as to where it's going to lead you. Um, and the game kind of. Uh, the story of the game kind of unfolds uh, chaotically and randomly. Whereas um, her story, and to an extent telling lies, both, um, certainly when I played them, they unfold with um, exquisite precision. Even though you can you could plausibly type in the right keywords as soon as you fired up the game and get the ending and get the twist, it was still insanely well designed to prevent you from doing that and to give you a story, essentially with a beginning and a middle and an end. And Immortality, I think, um, doesn't do that. And it means that I think it's a game that has exquisite storytelling across its kind of background story. Like, you know, how these three movies were made, who the people were who made them, you know, uh, what their relationships were like, what the world was like around them. I think those things are all rendered pretty flawlessly. But I think what the game lacks because it doesn't have a, a kind of concrete way of uncovering a story, is that the, the narrative, the actual story, the actual what is this game about and, you know, what is the, what is the, what is the actual beats of this mystery, that is probably the weakest element. And the kind of meta-narrative that emerges as you go, um, which I won't spoil, um, is actually a little bit too simplistic to the um to the it's a bit too simplistic compared compared to the amazing kind of vibes and mise en scène and uh deployment of these period uh details that make you know the those that facet of it such a kind of um perfume joy you know as i said to you earlier it's like hearing the berlin philharmonic playing some exquisite wagner and then someone doing a solo with a swanny whistle on top it's just kind of <laughs> it's a the 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 narrative thrust is just a little bit too um simplistic and thin and easy and also i'd say reading through i read the um the review of it i think it was on rock paper shotgun or perhaps eurogamer uh, written by a female reviewer who talked a little bit about 
the game's portrayal of women and the game's portrayal of sex and you know it's a lot of nudity in the game and and talking about Barlow's aspect um uh, Barlow's attitude to those things which I won't go like I won't like uh, argue here I think she makes very good points I think that um that is the problem that the game has though is that when you're building a lot of your when your game is really uh, the game is good because of the vibes the game is good because of the the sense of verisimilitude and and the the performances are so good but if you're telling a story that is essentially about the way we look at people and the way we sort of steal steal from their souls by putting a camera on them and stuff like that you're running the risk of being a little bit retrograde retrograde and being a little bit you know running the risk of being like a kind of cheap erotic thriller which i don't think immortality <laughs> is um but there are certainly tropes to that kind of um you know it's it's the sort of thing that hitchcock was playing with it's the sort of thing that um brian de palma was playing with in in his kind of um you know uh, tributes to hitchcock and, and that kind of um I don't really know what I'm getting at, really. I guess I think, you know, it's a story of an actress and it's the story of of what she kind of gives away of herself. And it's beautifully told. But I do think, you know, thinking back on it and and sort of reading some other perspectives that because of the way the story unfolds, we're running the risk of it being on the verge or of kind of a way of looking at women and, and... their bodies in particular that I feel a bit uncomfortable with. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, well, one of the things you can match cut are nude female bodies. And I obviously that is uh, intentional. And there is, I, I insist that is not something I discovered initially. <laughs> and that is, that is, uh, that was a last resort after I'd clicked on everything. Um, but uh <laughs> I don't think it makes a good case for that stuff. No, it's 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 tricky. It, she's she's one of those characters who, you know, and I'll be careful now not to not to spoil it. I think, but like, she is a character who is very available sexually to the men around her, and is an enthusiastic. Um, you know, kind of participant in all sorts of shenanigans. You know, there's a there's one scene where she's, I think she's just taking a kind of moment with um, a friend of the director or one of the backers of the movie, and she has a photo taken with him, and she just casually exposes her breast for the for the picture with him. Um, and obviously, you know, without spoiling anything, the nature of that character is more than just, you know more than just as it first appears but that is a troubling world to to um to be telling a story about you know and it's the sort of stuff that David Lynch has spent a lot of time thinking about and that idea of 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 women on film as creations of men and as sort of um objects of desire that are also you know a kind of um you know, a portal 
for uh, everything that is unexpressible or inexpressible or difficult to articulate. These are all like tropes um, that are problematic and are tricky and you really better know what you're doing when you when you go into them, you know, mm. because you run the risk of doing that thing of like, you know, let's portray women as these kind of like um, erotic priestesses of sexual uh, gnosis, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. where you're just kind of reducing them to mystical um, beings who exist to kind of service your your own spiritual advancement, you know? I mean, at best, otherwise it's just body parts. Yeah. And the body parts are just there, you know. Oh, oh, oh yeah, and she has her boobs out when it happens. It's like, you have to be so careful with that. I think for me, ultimately, the game the game manages to... I think the, the game is trying to address that. Um, yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's risky waters. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think had that, uh, that kind of the idea of what well, the sex exploitation stuff been contained within the uh, narrative, uh, that would have, I would still find it. I would still have questions about it. Uh, I'd be interested in to read the, um, the uh, article you mentioned earlier, but I, the fact that it bleeds over into a necessary aspect of the browsing interface yeah. <laughs> is something that is, you know, doesn't uh, meet the kind of required level of defense, I think, because because um, I had I'd essentially run into a brick wall in, in my dis- pursuit of discovering things. I was resurfacing the same clips again and again, getting quite frustrated. And then um, in desperation, I, I you know, I, I clicked on a boob and uh, boob search turned out to be inordinately powerful in surfacing clips that I had n- had not previously seen, and it felt like you know it, it felt like that dishonoured moment where you know it's wagging its finger at you saying naughty naughty you shouldn't be using violence by the way here's the most powerful tool in the game try not to enjoy it <laughs> and uh, I, I felt there's there was sort of inherent level of hypocrisy in the in the way that that interface facilitated. Um, unlocking the story through something that I didn't particularly want to do. Um, uh, I, I felt like I was being chided for it at the same time as 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 it becoming increasingly necessary to my own investigation. Marsh Davies, boob detective. <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to talk to you about the um, the individual films themselves, or rather, just the. the um, the way that they've been constructed to pastiche very specific and quite interesting moments of cinema, because I, I found that to be the most enjoyable part of the game. Really, the the meta narrative, I, I think, is there is there is something interesting going on there. Whether the sheer volume of clips that are available to you and the uh, opacity of the discovery mechanism that sort of outlasted my desire to to really dig into the meta narrative, which is harder to kind of discover. Um, <clears throat> so maybe that means the meta narrative was not sufficiently kind of enriching to to keep me going, or maybe it just meant that it was there was too many clips in general to make that discovery more palatable. But all of that aside, that the individual films themselves are quite winning. I think, like, I I would probably watch any of those films were they actually made. And I, I think, uh, like, so the, the there's there are three films. The first one um, uh, called uh, Ambrosio. It's based on the monk, which is a, a real story, and uh, it's a you know a tale of uh, a monk being seduced and is very. I mean, it's got this kind of Hitchcockian director. 
And a lot of the ways in which it's shot are quite reminiscent of um, filmmaking of like the late 50s and early 60s. You've got a lot of uh, like beautiful split diopter shots, you know. Um, You've got, uh, you know, luscious matte paintings and so forth. Uh, All kinds of like camera techniques that are kind of redolent of of a very specific era of filmmaking. And yeah, it's sort of creaking dangerously towards like the the 70s uh the inherent horniness of the 70s um <laughs> things that would have been forbidden in past decades are now becoming permissible and like the collision of those two things is really well articulated in the in the way that it is aesthetically constructed and i i found myself quite sort of like staggered by how precisely they'd managed to pin like the filmmaking troubles of an exact moment in history you know yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think I think that attention to detail mixed with characters who all feel basically real. I mean, the performances, I said it last week, but the performance in this game, I think are just, everyone's amazing. Everyone's brilliant. And it's what stops the game from, you know, sort of driving off the cliff with all the boobage that's going on, is that the characters themselves are whole and complete people even when they're not you know and so uh i think that that is kind of yeah the secret source of of the whole game and so like that first movie is a movie that you'd want to watch um and uh, in a world that you'd want to spend time and then the people making it are also they just feel very period accurate and uh yeah i think that is that is that just can't be overstated. I think how good that aspect of the game is. I I, I also really enjoyed the second film, um, uh, Minsky, which is a sort of like sexy gumshoe thriller. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not as familiar with who specifically that 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 is sort of uh, pastiching. I was wondering if you had um, insight into exactly its sort of touchstones. Yeah, I I thought it existed in a weird sort of. There was a bit of um, Roman Polanski to it, um, and a little bit of Sidney Lumet. Sidney oh, yeah. Lumet movies from the seventies, um, John Cassavetes as well. Like mm. a lot of kind of movies that would end up kind of helping to define what indie movies would look like, um, which makes sense if you you know if the, the same director of that is what is the person who goes on to make um, two of everything, the the final movie. Um, no, I, I really enjoyed uh, Minsky. Again, it felt like, you know, there's all this kind of chatter in it about, um, you know, Andy Warhol. Uh, Andy Warhol appears at one point, oh, yeah. which is pretty cool. Um, you know, and I just like that kind of Chelsea Hotel vibe. Again, the, the game is just overflowing with vibes. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I would definitely watch that movie too, you know. Um, I didn't jive quite as well with, um, with Two of Everything. I think maybe because it's sort of harder to place uh what what vibe it in fact has because a lot so much of it is maybe i think more of uh two of everything is is rehearsal footage so it's kind of you know inherently divorced of most of the kind of the aesthetic that would lend it some sort of identity yeah they don't Um, get too far through the making of that one before things go uh somewhat awry (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i have to i have to say i i i really liked um because it just reminded me of you know, because that one's 1999, I think they're making that mm. one. And that, you know, that's when I was 14. And 
watching a lot of those kind of post Tarantino movies that kind of came out through the nineties that were kind of, you know, indie, um, you know, it's the kind of, yeah, I guess it's the kind of indie movement at the end of the nineties with Soderbergh and, and Tarantino and all those kind of yeah. pretender type movies. And I just felt thought that it just felt very accurate to that and also very accurate to the slightly soulless feeling of the time as well. Um, yes. Like yeah, the yeah. feeling that you're, you know, it's quite a, that is the least interesting movie in and of itself because it's it's kind of pretty um pretty basic <laughs> yeah i mean i don't pretty generic. I, the other two films would survive uh as as films like for sure because yeah. there are there is they have a plot there are mystery elements to them there's suspense there is intrigue whereas two of everything the only intrigue that is lent it is in the non-linear way in which you discover the plot. I think if you put the plot in sequence, there would be no <laughs> there would be no mystery at all to what happens. It just things happen, and then <laughs> that's it. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I'm less certain. I'm less convinced of that as a sort well, of like standalone I, film. I mean, and not to be the guy who's like, well, that's a feature, not a bug, but the fact that it's kind of less coherent and and less easily identifiable, you know, I think that is Hmm. part of the story they're telling, yeah. Definitely uh, an interesting and worthwhile game to play. I'm really interested to see what uh, that studio does next, whether they they stick with the the sort of match-cut interaction because that's uh, they've stuck with the word search for a few games, so maybe they'll hang on to this one for a while or whether they'll try and evolve it further. Um, I'm not quite sure where they would go with it now or how they would limit its power because that seems to be pretty key in how they prevent you from just unfolding the entire narrative from you know instantaneously yeah you don't want you don't want them to stray too far away from it because you know i think you know i'm always going to play a sambalo game and one of the reasons i want to play them is because i know that he is incredibly uh, he and his team are incredibly um you know careful about about expanding things, you know. I mean, this is by far and away the most expansive game he's made, but he's taken his time getting there. And you know, I, I I'm yeah, like I say, I'm just fascinated with what, whatever he does next. I also just generally hope that there's more good um, FMV games to come. But you know, I'd love to write one one day. Um, uh, you know, I think it's a a really like a space with a lot of potential and a lot of potential for a lot of shite stuff, which has been the case <laughs> for the entire history of video games pretty much so far. But like, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, we can't start doing good ones now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the, the, the actors in this are, are a real find. Like I, I don't know their faces. They're obviously not super famous, but I, I, yeah. I hope that some of them do become super famous. Yeah. I mean, I think the lead is incredible. I think the, um, the Italian lady from Ambrosio is, mm. is like really, really good. <laughs> um, you know, and there's a couple of really amazing scenes with her. But I, I generally think that everyone in it is is really, really excellent. I, you know, I, I think it's really impressive to that regard. And getting a good performance in one of these things, you know, it's just, it's far rarer than it should be. But, you know, there you go. More please, Sam. More please, Sam. I think that art- I think that article I mentioned ends by suggesting that he maybe make a game that isn't about women <laughs> uh, mm. being watched by men, um, and I think that might might be a good avenue uh, <laughs> yeah. to potentially explore. Um, 
Yeah, actually, all of his games have involved exactly that, haven't they? Yeah. (laughs) And maybe we want to start clicking on some knobs for a change, you know. (laughs) That's all the pod we had time for this week. Um, You can send us questions uh, again once more to questions at crateandcrowbar.com. Not quite sure when we'll answer them, but we'll probably come back to it in a podcast at some point rather than end each podcast with a question section. Um, You can also tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. And you can watch all of these recordings as videos um, on our YouTube channel, where you can find other nonsense by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our backers and Patreon. You can back us, too, at patreon.com slash crowbar. Thank you very much to those who do. Uh, or you can simply join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Jamie Britton. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird thing to do with someone I've never met face to face.